0: I was expecting it to be bad. I'd prepared myself for that. What I didn't expect was to be cringing so hard that I was curled up in a fetal ball on the floor after half an hour of this film. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Double Reel, the monthly podcast magazine that delivers a wealth of high quality nerdy film content direct to your waiting ears. We're into that second month and episode of 2021 helping you to cling on to that optimistic feeling that things are going to get better even though they're currently still quite shit. My name's James Adamson and I'm an ordinary member of the public with no standing in the media or the film industry. What I do have is a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thank you very much for that
1: lovely introduction. I'm happy to be here and uh, ready to get into it. Each month, we aim to bring you a range of features from the film world, split into two reels for those of you who like to take an intermission between installments of film content. If
0: you want to comment on the podcast or with your thoughts on the world of cinema generally, you can reach us on Twitter on at 73, or search for Double Reel Film Podcast, which should take you to our profile. There's also an Instagram called Double Reel Podcast, and a Double reel Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined.
1: Here's what's coming up in episode 10.
0: First up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds with some film news, a look at how we're living up to our New Year's resolutions for the world of film, and look at some of the more notable movies we've watched since the last episode.
1: Then it's time for Classics and Recommended, where we try to avoid the one millionth TV repeat of the 40-year-old version and instead get round to something from our backlog of great films we haven't seen yet. This month it's a timely look at the alternative history of CSA, the Confederate States of America.
0: Our hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser-known film that deserves a wider audience, which this month is Regina King's excellent One Night in Miami.
1: Then we turn to The One That Got Away and look at a tall tale of a potentially great film a top director tried and failed to bring to the big screen. This month we're looking at Spike Lee's long-running passion project, Save Us, Joe Lewis. We close the
0: first reel of this episode with the remake Hate Watch, which this month looks at the despicable 2006 reboot of The Pink Panther.
1: After a brief intermission, the second reel of this episode will feature The Big Conversation, in which the Adamsons tackle the topic from the film world in more detail. In episode 10, we are covering the modern phenomenon of toxic fandom and its effect on filmmaking.
0: But first, some messages from listeners, a.k.a. the podcast magazine Letters Page. I asked people on the socials what they thought of Wonder Woman 1984, and we got quite a response. Not many fans, apparently, or one or two people who liked it. But Danny asks, why was Wonder Woman fighting a character from Cats? anel said, it was free for me to watch on HBO Max, and it wasn't even worth free. Alex said, it was okay, but the story wouldn't stand up to even a tiny bit of logical scrutiny. I liked it more than most, but I can't defend it. Safe to say, it hasn't been that well-reviewed a film. Also, as usual, we trailed this month's topics on the socials, and people let us know what they thought. Chanpa said, I enjoyed CSA, a clever piece of alternative history. Aldi commented on One Night in Miami. I didn't know what to expect on the way in, but I really enjoyed it. Marie also said she loved it. Uh, I almost missed it, she says, because release dates were so messed up, and I didn't see it advertised on Amazon Prime. And Latrell said, loved it, good acting all round. When you can carry a whole film just on dialogue, that's good going. AK weighed in on the Joe Lewis movie that uh, we're going to be discussing. If Spike were to make this now, he could get Robert Richard to pay Joe Lewis and Daniel Brühl for Schmeling. I had to look those up. Daniel Robert Richard's on TV in some programs I haven't seen. Not a bad resemblance, although he's a bit short. I think Daniel Brühl would really need to bulk up, though. And finally, there's some defense for the Pink Panther remake, unbelievably. No. Jonathan said, some of the belated sequels without sellers like Son of the Pink Panther and Trail of the Pink Panther were worse. Well, we're about remakes, not sequels here, but I'll take your point. And Pete said, just look on the new ones as children's versions, which is faint praise indeed. Thanks, as always, for your messages. They're all appreciated, even the ones we didn't read out. Now for this month's episode. Now for our monthly roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds. We look at any major film news that's breaking this month and how we've been getting on fitting in movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. As well as that, last month we made some film-related New Year's resolutions for 2021, and we'll be checking in on whether we've managed to keep them up. So first of all, in terms of film news, I didn't see a huge amount this month. I don't know about you,
1: James. Um, in terms of actual releases of films, uh, no, but um there's a couple... Uh there's a couple like notable headlines. I know. noticed Christopher Plummer obviously passed away at ninety-one. Yeah, which is a good innings. He was a really good actor. Um, still doing it till you know pretty much the day he passed away with the uh, things like all the money in the world. He was a terrific actor. It's a real shame. But yeah, I was very impressed innings. by the way he stepped
0: stepped in for all the money in the world because the whole film had actually been shot and they had to, he had to come in and, and almost sort of um sort of copy over Kevin Spacey's performance although it was very interesting that he was able to just step in and do that
1: yeah luckily I uh, read up about it he, um, he managed to get a hold of the script um, before it was actually filmed and you know he was familiar with the character so he wasn't um, yeah, yeah. thrown off I also watched I think the last
0: film he did before it, before he sort of died which was uh, Knives Out which I really enjoyed and he was a very good character That's in that the as well.
1: one with um, was it Rihanna Ryan Johnson who made that yeah yeah kind of a- film. Yeah, yeah, he's gone back to what he knows. Goes back to what he knows. You know, he also made Looper and Knives Out, which I've not seen Knives Out, but it is meant to be very good. Um,
0: Yeah, it's kind of a uh, a nice sort of modern kind of update twist on the uh, sort of country house murder mystery. It's good fun. So, yeah, definitely. I mean, speaking of people who have have reached their 90s, there's more good news in which uh, James Earl Jones is still going strong and has recently celebrated his 90th birthday, which is nice to hear. He's a, an absolute legend, obviously. So uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure he's listening as he always does. So happy birthday, James! <laughs> Best voice in cinema. So yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not sure if I saw any other film news apart from that. I don't know about you.
1: Um, no, nothing, nothing notable. They're not making films at the moment, or they've slowed down the making of films at the moment. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's not as bit... much coming out. Yeah. I mean, I did I did think it was interesting, and we'll cut into our our, our hidden
0: gem later. That um, uh new releases people are kind of missing them they're not seeing them advertised and so i was really hoping to see that and didn't even know it was out that seems to be a bit of a challenge with the yep. whole kind of streaming and
1: well, the, fucking golden of globe, the golden globe nominations were put out to be fair that's pretty big film news I, I didn't even see that wow how did i miss that do you want to quickly cover that or do you want to leave it let's further? have
0: a quick look yeah nominations See the Golden Globes tend to be, with a few like quirky differences, they're they're almost trying to guess what the Oscar nominations are going to be. They always try and get in first, don't they?
1: Yeah, and they've kind of shifted to the kind of Oscar pattern where they, they try and spread out the awards for everyone. Because uh, one night Miami got Best Supporting Actor, Best Director, and mm. I want to say Best Screenplay or something like that. But mm-hmm. oh no, Best Song for uh, one of the best songs, but didn't get Best Picture, um, which is strange. But uh.
0: Uh. David Fincher's new film Mank got a nomination for best drama.
1: Okay, right. So I've got I've got it up here. So we've got the best picture drama. We've got the Father. Not seen Mank. Not seen. I've not seen any of these because I don't. They've been released. Or Manc, they... Yeah, Mank's out on Netflix, I think. Oh, is it? No, oh, I might get that watch. And mm-hmm. the Trial of Chicago Seven. I started watching that, but kind of fell asleep. Um, <laughs> musical comedy. You've got um, Borat's subsequent movie film Hamilton, which should probably win that. Uh, music. A film by Sia. I've not seen. In the Best Actress, motion picture drama. I forgot how fucking annoying the Globes are with this, just so everyone gets a fair shot. Uh, mm-hmm. Viola Davis from Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Andrew Day for United States versus Bo- *Billy Holiday. Mm-hmm. Not seen that. Uh, Vanessa Kirby. I've not even heard of half of these films, to be honest. I've just not been paying attention.
0: Yeah, Pieces of a Woman, I think, is one of those films which revolves entirely around the lead performance, if you see what
1: I mean. Yeah. Uh, Francis McDormand for Nomadland. Carrie Mulligan for Promising Young Women. Best actor, motion picture drama. Riz Ahmed of Four Lions fame. Um,
0: yeah, he plays a he plays a drum in a rock band. He's starting to lose his hearing. No, he's a he's a very talented actor. I think he's, he's a terrific actor. You just if you look at that though, Chadwick Boseman's final performance as a real life character, uh, and Gary Oldman in heavy makeup as a as a real life character from the film industry. If you were gonna if you were gonna bet a fiver, I would I would put my money on those just because those are the sort of things that get rewarded by the uh, the award shows, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Best
1: yeah. action, motion, picture, musical, or comedy, Sasha Baron Cohen, James Corden. That can get to fuck. Um <laughs> I, I cannot fucking hack that guy. He is fucking everywhere. He needs a day off, man. Even his picture on the fucking – I know we'd we we do not film the podcast, but even his fucking face for this Golden Globe nomination is fucking he's got this horrible are you are you on the same website as me?
0: No, I'm on the BBC website, oh, so I think not, I'm missing he's, the he's, visual he's, element that you've got going there.
1: No, he's, Lin-Manuel Miranda for Hamilton, uh, Dev Patel for The Personal History of David Copperfield. Did that not come out like two years ago, or am I missing something?
0: I think that did come out last year. The whole thing with the America, that they got the way it works in, in America is that everything gets released at a specific time in America, so you get stuff that's nominated that isn't out here yet, and you get stuff that we saw a while ago, and I think David Copperfield was early last year, but I think it came out I think they the release date in the US was different.
1: And then Best Supporting Actress, you've got Glenn Close for Hillbilly Elegy, Olivia Colman for The Father, Jodie Foster for The Mauritanian, Amanda Seyfried, Seyfried, I don't know how her name, for Mank, and Helena Zengel for News of the World. She looks quite young. Um, like she might be. A- Sasha
0: Baron Cohen has two acting nominations because he's got a Supporting Actor nomination for Trial of Chicago 7, but he got a comedy nod for um, Borat as well.
1: I mean he's not winning the best pouring actor when you look at who's nominated you've got Sasha Baron Cohen for Trial of Chicago uh, the trail of the Chicago seven you have got Daniel Kaluva for Judas and the Black Messiah you've got Jared Leto for The Little Things Bill Murray for On the Rocks and Leslie Odom Jr for playing Sam Cooke in One Night in Miami so
0: yeah you see the Judas and the Black Messiah I don't think that's out over here yet but they it's seem to have incredible. slipped in over there I'm very excited I think that's going to be I'm really hoping that's going to be as good as it as it promises to be Judas and the Black Messiah
1: And then the last of the big ones, I suppose, because we don't have all day to go through every single one, Best Director Motion Picture, you've got Emerald Fennel for Promising Young Woman, um, David Fincher for Mank, Regina King for One Night in Miami. That's nice going, isn't it? That's her directing debut. Uh, Regina King, yeah. We'll we'll discuss One Night in Miami. um, Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Short Short movie, it, but, you um, know, it's like fair play to her. She's, you know, whatever else happens to make your first film and get a, a Globe nomination for best director she, in making it is, won it is, is not it. bad. Going
1: recently, didn't she? Um, best, yeah. For,
0: I think that's supporting actress. Was that if, that was if Bill Street could talk? Yeah, ah, yeah.
1: And then Aaron Sorkin. I remember her as the head of HR in Big Bang Theory. I remember from Daddy Daycare. So um, <laughs> 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 she's come a long way. <laughs> that's right. That's
0: every, every great actor has got jobs she's too good for. Right before she really gets yeah, into a yeah. struggle.
1: Right, right, to be fair, that film is terrible, but she's not terrible in it because she's barely in it. Probably good, yeah. Probably a good thing. Yeah. Aaron Sork in the trailer, the Chicago Seven, Chloe Zhao for uh, Nomadland. And then don't know about it, yeah. And then animated, if anyone cares, the the Croods A New Age, fuck me. Onward by Pixar, which will probably win over the Moon and Soul by Disney Pixar, which will it's, yeah, Pixar's be Pixar is probably winning this year. I've not seen. Yeah, it, Soul's
0: but. getting amazing, uh, amazing reviews. Although I would, I might as well get my obligatory Mark uh I might as well get my obligatory Mark, uh, well Mark Kermo reference in early. There goes, there goes the Kermode faction. He, uh, he gave all sorts of praise to Wolfwalkers that came out last year. It sounded quite interesting. It's a, a sort of a fantasy animation based in Ireland, which you don't get every day. So. Oh, gee,
1: that's good. No, um interesting bunch. Yeah. Um, I've not seen a lot of the films I should probably that should probably be one of my favorite it's, it's, revolutions. It's, yeah
0: I know the thing is with with lockdown things not coming out in the cinema and you've got this whole thing that a lot of releases for the award ceremony is really tactical, so you'll have months go by where you have blockbuster season, you know like January and February films just get dumped, and then in December like every film that wants an award comes out all at once, you know so it's really it can, it's you know even if you're the sort of person who likes to see all the films that be nominated, it can be hard to to get to see them even when you're not in lockdown, you know? Yeah,
1: I mean, the problem is, is that films that are meant to be coming out right now in the cinema that are being released on home release are ridiculously expensive. It was like 16 quid to watch wonder woman 84. And I thought it was fucking shit. Um, it was just, it was a hot pile of garbage that didn't need to be two and a half hours long. Um, and it was, it was no, it just, had, that,
0: that film has just put everybody's back up. There is literally they, that film has got no friends. Put, some, put everyone's back up like the fucking awful cat at the end of the fucking film. So yeah, I mean, I think that's the news. Um, I must say, it just goes to show that there's this kind of surreal, non-kind of uh, non-live-like element to film at the moment. That the Golden Globe nominations came out and it just fucking passed me by.
1: Yeah, we're both quite busy, I guess. So, but I, I noticed that yeah. they came out. I give them a quick scan and a quick read. Yeah, sure
0: um okay well well that that's the news so in terms of our roundup of everything else um why don't we look at what our um how we're doing against our film resolutions for the year now you said you were going to try and watch more films uh, i think you talked about the, the the challenge in the past haven't you that you get home late and you've probably got an hour to watch one episode of a tv show not two hours to watch a film so you've been watching more tv than film but how have you been getting on with that now that you've you know set yourself a bit of a target
1: yeah, I'm just. I'm going to open up my Netflix and what I've been watching on Prime now, and just have a little look. But the things I can remember off the top of my head is that I have been trying to watch more films. I watched um, the First Man, the one about Neil Armstrong. Or is it just called? Oh Fire? yeah, with
0: that's um,
1: oh, who's that again? Uh, Ryan Gosling plays Neil Armstrong. Of course it is. Of course it is. Yeah. Um, um, how was that? It was fucking boring. Um, yeah. But they've done. The thing is, they've done everything they can to make it interesting and talk about. You know Neil Armstrong's life and like you know how dangerous it actually was to be an astronaut in the sixties. You know like the spoilers, a couple people, like a couple of his pals that were with him at NASA do die, and they've tried to kind yeah. of bring that in and like you know there's some cool stuff like the zero gravity stuff which are like nice shots, but the problem is at the end of the day it's it's quite a not non-eventful because it is one of the most momentous things in history to happen. You know putting a man on the moon, but it it was quite boring. It was like another it was, it was two hours and it was you know it was quite a slog, but. What what I did read about it um, was that the children of Neil Armstrong and her name escaped me, but his wife, the the children from that relationship, they both agreed that that was the most accurate depiction of their parents' um, life, yeah, marital life. Um,
0: it could be tough, though, is that you know, on the one hand, you know, you got to try and be accurate, but also you have got to try and be cinematic, haven't you? Um, I, I, I believe, and we've had this chat before about some films being better suited to a documentary. I've heard that the Apollo Eleven documentary is amazing, and I've been kind of saving that up to try and watch, you know, on the big telly when I got two hours to just totally concentrate on it. But apparently, the documentary Apollo Eleven is amazing. Yeah. Um, that you know covers the um, the moon landings.
1: Um, and in terms of other films that I've watched, um not not much really not not nothing coming up on my netflix just now that springs to mind that i've watched this month um or maybe it's still in the continue for what continue watching i watched the wolf of wall street again because that's always a good watch um yeah. um but i kind of went against my resolution and watched another um tv show i started cobra kai What's that like? It's fucking awesome. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's And the best thing about it is that it's 25-minute episodes, so I can get home from work and watch like four episodes, and then mm-hmm. well, that's only like an hour and a half or so, and then be in bed. Although, to be fair, I've been working more mornings, so I've been coming home and actually having like a few hours before I have to go to bed. Um, so that's probably why I squeezed in a couple films. of films. But, um, I feel like I'm- it's,
0: it's such a random – it's one of those things where a kind of random uh, – thing to spin off or or story to continue where you think really and then but everyone tells you they've done such a great job of it it is it keeps popping up on my kind of watch now and going yeah I'm, i am probably going to get around to that I eventually watched
1: it in the space of like three days as well because it is 25 minute episodes you can watch the first season yeah, like tremendous four hours um it's really good that they've wow. got a lot of the old cast back um for it still yeah. still awfully cheesy um but I think it was on the back of watching <laughs> the Karate Kid from last month, but it's got a good soundtrack, a better soundtrack than One yeah. the Woman eighty four did I actually had songs from the eighties. Um in it. That's and it, interesting. You know, it's really good. It's good seeing it from the perspective of um Johnny Lawrence, obviously the the antagonist from the Karate Kid films and how he sees his relationship with Daniel yeah. and things like that. I know it's a TV show and it's not really a film, but that that's what I watched and I actually really enjoyed.
0: It obviously has a big film heritage behind it, right? Yeah. yeah. All right cool, well, obviously you have actually gone out of your way to watch a couple of films, so' you know shows you're working at it um, and funnily enough, you actually fulfilled one you know what i 'm supposed to be doing on my uh, resolutions was to get back around to watching some of those classic films that i haven 't seen for years and need another another viewing. I did manage to watch uh, Amadeus I finished Amadeus uh having mentioned that I was going to try and watch that, and that is an amazing film. I got the directors cut now so you get an extra you, know, you get an extra 20 minutes You just kind of um, nothing new happens, but you just get a bit more, you know, a, a deeper, richer experience. I just love that film. Again, it's another one where you go, oh, two rival composers making classical music in the 18th century, but for that to be as utterly compelling and beautiful as it was.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, in terms of that, I'm looking at, um, you know, trying to watch something else uh, for, for, for next month as well. You know, I, if, if I set myself a target of watching it, that sort of increases the chance that I watch it. I was thinking about City of God. And I was also thinking about the Right stuff, which is—I know there's a, t- a new TV series of that, but the classic film from the, the early '80s about the, the the pioneers of space travel, you know, the, the John Glenn and all of them. That's an amazing film. And given what you said about um, the Neil Armstrong film, I might—I might might make that my next kind of something old to to watch again.
1: Yeah.
0: Of course, I, I, I did I did still watch a film on ITV4. I watched Manhunter, which I've watched a million times before, but I just can't resist it. So I haven't completely kicked the ITV4 habit.
1: Well, we'll get you into rehab soon. It's fine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Other than that, I, I did try and watch some new releases as well, or newish releases, you know, just to see what's going on. I watched uh, Midnight Sky, the one with uh, George Clooney and Felicity Jones. I don't know if you've seen that.
1: That rings a bell, but I don't really know what it's about.
0: It's a sci fi set, like 50 years from now, um, the Earth is, uh, you know, dying out. There's been a cat- catastrophic event. George Clooney is essentially the last man on Earth. He's trying to get messages out to spaceships that have been exploring other planets in deep space, telling them don't come back, you know. Because I think one some of the
1: When he's in the Arctic. Yeah. I started watching that. I was really fucking bored.
0: It was. I was really disappointed with it. They spent a lot of money on it. It's a good cast, but it never really came to life. When you consider the ideas, you know, it's like um it's almost like doing the story of Interstellar, except never no one ever really gets off the ground. It's like oh, okay, great. Uh quite disappointed with that um i'll tell you what i wasn't disappointed by was a new release that just came out since our last episode aired um which is the white tiger now the white tiger is on netflix so anyone with a netflix subscription can watch it uh, it's an adaptation of a book a prize winning novel which i normally approach with caution but i read that book years ago and it's absolutely stunning and they've made a film of it it's about a man from a poor background like an Indian village. Um, who is exploited by the rich Indians that he's a servant for. He's their driver and their general gopher. And it it, it looks into that kind of almost feudal society they've got in India where if someone's above you in the pecking order or the caste system, you kind of have to treat them like a god. And he's basically working himself into the ground for these rich people and for his family who expect him to just send all the money home. And he just turns on everyone. And it's this savage indictment of modern Indian society. It's absolutely brilliantly done. If you like Parasite, you're definitely going to like this because – although it's quite a different story. It shares some quite common themes, so definitely The White Tiger. It's just some of it is so dark, you think, fucking hell, that's a bleak sentiment, but just beautiful. So, so sharp.
1: No, you better give it a watch.
0: And I did um, try and watch another Korean film, because as we know and acknowledge on this show, the Koreans know their shit, so I watched uh, Steel Rain. I don't know if you've seen that. No, but it sounds pretty badass. Eh? So basically the Korean Peninsula has got its own Cold War that's been going on since 1950 which means that Korean cinema has lots of thrillers based on the idea of North and South almost coming to the brink of war. Right. And how do you stop it? And this is in that. There's basically a coup in North Korea, and a North Korean spy um, tries to take the old leader who's wounded to the South and let them know what's going on because he thinks this coup is going to kick off a nuclear war. And he sort of gets – you know has to work with people from South Korea that he doesn't entirely trust – Um, To stop the coup succeeding and keep the leader alive, and there's like South North Korean spies in the South, kind of trying to pick them all off, and uh, so really good sort of action thriller, but with like this political element, which you have to kind of you have to work at following it because it's aimed at a Korean audience. They don't stop and explain everything that's happened in the last 50 years in Korea to you because they assume their audience already knows it. But it's cracking, and it's got a shootout in a hospital which is close to being as good in the one as the one in John Woo's Hard Boiled, and I cannot pay. Any higher compliment than that to a shootout? So that, if you've got two hours to just watch a an absolute balls out action film, it's thoroughly, thoroughly recommended.
1: What's on? Is it on Prime? Uh,
0: Netflix. Yeah. The, the last thing that I did was my other New Year's resolution was to make twenty twenty one the year of the Carpenter, and uh, as I said, each each uh, month I was going to watch a nominated uh, film from my favourite John Carpenter films, and, and this month was Dark Star, um, which is you know one of his lowest rated films. It's six point three on IMDb. Um, and it's it, this was actually John Carpenter's student film. He did it while he was still at university and it was quite good. So they borrowed $60,000 and expanded it so it was feature length, sneaked it out of the, out of the university who supposedly owned the rights and released it on a festival and, and, and on a few cinemas. So it's kind of like where John Carpenter's career began. And on the one hand, it looks exactly like a student film, I and mean, it's so cheap. And for them to try and do it, it's a science fiction movie set in deep space and the, 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 with a the spaceship going faster than light. And to do that on that kind of budget, frankly, you've got to be insane. I mean, I don't know how they thought they'd get away with it, but it's it's quite fun. It's like a hippie parody of 2001 on like 1 200th of the budget. Um, it was co-written by Dan O'Bannon, who went on to do things like Alien and Total Recall. So it's got it's got a good pedigree. It's more of a piece of cinema history than a proper film, really, because you know you watch it, and while it's quite trippy and quite fun, you just think, God, that looks like cardboard, it's so cheap. Um, but there's a whole sequence where um they've got an alien on board that they've kind of kept as a pet, but it, it gets out and starts to make a nuisance of itself, and they've got to kind of go around all these corridors trying to try and find where the alien's hiding. And it's absolutely hilarious. It's basically alien, like the scary version of alien, but done for comedy. Right. Which which is quite interesting because the guy who wrote that for this movie went and wrote Alien. Dan O'Bannon wrote Alien, and and it's basically the same storyline. He did it once as a comedy, once as a horror. Um, the other fun aspect of this, because we're both fans of this, is that it, this film is basically the entire um, uh, uh, inspiration for Red Dwarf. Oh,
1: really? Incredible. Is it? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Basically, the Doug Naylor, who created Red Dwarf, he co-wrote it with another guy, um, Rob Grant, but he created this um, radio show called uh, Dave Holland's Space Cadet, which he later expanded into Red Dwarf. And the whole thing is, is inspired by Dark Star, which is why their spaceship is called Red Dwarf, which is a kind of star. And Starbug looks a bit like one of their ships, and the idea of machines that are comically disobedient. Um, everything's going, you know, they're, they're aging slowly because it affects the effects of space travel. There's a malfunctioning food dispensing machine. Honestly, this is this is where he got a lot of his ideas, so it's quite fun watching it for that reason. And a, a super nerdy fact is that one of the characters in Danny Boyle's film Sunshine, which he did for the podcast, is named after a character in Dark Star. So it's, I wouldn't say this is the best thing to watch yourself, but it was quite fun to see this kind of early prototype sci-fi movie, which you know is the inspiration for other films. Yeah, it's like a kind of a base yeah. for yeah 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 so next month i'll be doing prince of darkness and we're starting to get into the area where um uh, john carpenter really hit his stride prince of darkness is a horror movie he did in the 80s but in honor of um uh, dark star um i'm going to do the impromptu top 10 that i always do for our roundup no um which is aside from dark star the top 10 most successful low budget sci-fi films so to get on this list you just have to be in one of those films that was done for a very low budget considering the um you know, the success and achievement of the film. And that top 10 goes like this. Uh, Moon, the Sam Rockwell film. Oh, yeah. uh, Mad Max, the original one. Uh, Cube, uh, Pi, um, Primer, uh, which is on our list of things to get around to watching. But, uh, you know, I'm not calling it a top 10 best film. I'm calling it most successful, so I'm still allowed to mention it. Uh, Quite a Mass in the Pit, uh, Scanners, Stalker. Death Race Two Thousand and Monsters. So, if you're a fan of low budget sci fi which, which uh, transcends its limitations, then that, that's your list of films to watch.
1: Okay, well, I'll, I'll take a, a note of that. <laughs>
0: Now for the classics and recommended feature, where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films we've been meaning to watch or been told to watch, instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of those films and mean we got to see and share our thoughts on great works like Lady Vengeance, Punch Drunk Love, Les Diabolique, Let the Right One In, David Cronenberg's Crash, Das Boot, Casino, The Blues Brothers, and Train to Busan. It's a long list now. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature, partly due to various listener recommendations, and also now that James is co-hosting and looking at classics, he hasn't got around to seeing. So currently our watch list looks like this. Oh, fuck. Wages of Fear, Hell or High Water, The Assassin, Spike Lee's 25th Hour, Departures, CSA, The Confederate States of America, Short Bus, A Tale of Two Sisters, The City of Lost Children, Under the Skin, Primer, Alphaville, and Boyhood. That should keep us going for a while.
1: The only, so this month say, we're sorry, turning... the only reason I say, oh fuck, is that, that that list seems to get longer every time. Oh, yeah, yeah, it is. It's like this <laughs> it's is the never ending list. <laughs> it's getting yeah. out of hand now. <laughs> Although I have seen Boyhood, so fucking get up, you.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's one for me to catch up on more than you, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's one so, so this month we're turning to a film that was recommended to us by listeners. I confess I hadn't heard of it before that, but the subject matter is intriguing and it's quite timely given recent events in the US. Our classic for episode 10 is CSA confederate states of america so james had you heard of this before it popped up on our list no
1: um i understood the premise pretty much right away as soon as you sent me the link um but i yeah. as, as i always do i do a little quick quick scan of imdb before it um before i look at it it's got a, a few thousand votes so that means it's not like you know the top top pop the films have so got like one and a half million yeah. so it's a very small kind of
0: yeah. And this was hard to find. I mean, I had it described to me as a listener, they, they read it out and I said, oh, that sounds interesting. And it's basically a mock documentary made in 2004, imagining what American history would have been like if the South had won the US Civil War. And uh, it's quite an interesting, but, you know, quite simple concept. Okay, well, how does that play out? Um, it's hard to find. I mean, I looked for it on, uh, we use justwatch.com, by the way, listeners, if you're always uh, looking to see what what's available to stream somewhere, justwatch.com is really good. UK-based uh, viewers can then see that it's on Amazon or it's on Netflix or Google Play or whatever. Um, wasn't there. Went on the, the online sites to see if it was available to buy on DVD. Secondhand for 68 quid. Well, I'm not fucking doing that. And putting putting 68 quid in the hands of someone who already owns a copy of it not the you know that that 68 quid isn't going in any way shape or form to the 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 people who made the film right so you know it it just seemed like uh uh, an absolute dead end so we did something that we don't normally do which is we watched it on youtube and ethically i justified this by saying i either wouldn't have watched it at all which is a shame uh or we watch it we discuss it people get to hear about it and Hopefully that will do something good for the uh, copyright owners because, you know, uh, an increased kind of uh, look at this film. Um, so instead of paying 70 quid, we, 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 <laughs> we did watch a link for it. So this is a really obscure film. It, it, it could almost have been a TV show and it was actually set up to look like that a little bit. It was under the sort of the, the setup that they did for the film when they, sh- when they, when they showed it up when they set it up they're saying okay so confederate tv is going to show you this it's a bit racy but we'll let you watch it anyway so it was almost presented as a tv broadcast even though it's a film um hardly any known actors in it um and i'll tell you what what threw me off is that the credit for the british narrator on imdb is for an american actor but I, i can't believe that's him doing the voice i don't know if you picked up on that james but the guy doing the voice, a British guy doing the narration in the film, is doing a very, very specific regional accent from sort of around sort of Merseyside, not full Scouser. There's no way an American actor can do that. I, I refuse to believe that an American actor. Um, yeah. That. So there's something. Yeah, so the, there's that. some mix-up with the credits. All we do know is it's written and directed by an African American filmmaker called Kevin Wilmot, and he's not very prominent as a director, but his writing credits are very good. By the way, he co-wrote a couple of Spike Lee films, including To Five Bloods. Uh, and uh, Black Klansman, for which he shared an Oscar for Best Screenplay. So that's his pedigree. Um,
1: So, I mean, what did you think of this when you actually sat down to watch it? It was interesting to watch from a historical kind of perspective because I do enjoy my history. Um, And it was interesting to see that they tried to have an explanation as to why the Confederacy would have won the American Civil War. Um, It's a bit of a weak reason for it.
0: See, that's exactly what I wrote down when I was making notes on this. I thought that's a bit of a shaky premise because they basically hinged it on two things, didn't they? Instead of Lincoln explicitly making it about freeing the slaves, that weakens his moral authority.
1: Yeah. And then
0: the French and the British are, you know, were waiting to join in, but there wasn't, uh, you know, but they, you know, in in our reality, they decided not to, you know, take a side. And in this, he decides that uh, the French and the British do decide to join in and support the South. And which turns the tide at Gettysburg? I thought that's a um, that very small shift was doing a lot of heavy lifting in this kind of scenario um, uh, coming to pass. If you see what I mean.
1: But well, to be honest, without getting into the heavy like heavy discussion about this, because no, the South wouldn't have won the American Civil War, so this is probably the least flimsy explanation that the the writers came up with for this kind of. Um, kind of reasoning behind them winning the civil war because the, the south would have never won the american civil war it was never a, a case of them winning the american civil war that's not what the american civil war was about i think what's happened is that the, the guy kevin wilmot's just wanted to make a documentary about it yeah yeah thought, right i just want to look at how the south would look how you know, how america would look under a confederate rulership and look yeah at I, think, I think i think what
0: he does is he yeah, man- yeah he manages to really capture that he captures that if it's all right uh, it didn't you know maybe then winning wasn't likely but all the things that they wanted to do like colonize south america all the impulses all the attitudes still there and after the, after the civil war you had jim crow instead so it was um i think it was interesting to show that perspective on american history i think it was valid
1: um it's there's, there's a couple of points that I, I look at and think um you know it's a little bit it's a little bit iffy um you know the the stuff with world war two and then there's there's not really a mention of the cold War do the one that they have a cold war with Canada. so it was a little bit it's a little bit kind of histori- historiographical discussion that i you know I yeah i mean i think really it was i think it was intended to
0: be satirical more than it was intended to be compelling alternative history the way something like fatherland was you know about about the you know uh, Nazis winning world war two if you see what i mean
1: yeah it's not it's not like the man in the high castle it's more a case of um mm-hmm it was he's obviously wanting to like he's the point of this is that at, at the end of the documentary he the, he basically makes these satirical what, what seems satirical adverts for places like the um what is it the um what's the tracker thing that they have for the um it's like a modern day version of like a GPS like tag
0: yeah so you can yeah basically it, it's like if you, you put it on in, in real life you'd put it on a pet to stop them getting away and in this uh, reality they're putting it on their slaves to stop them you know there's, getting away
1: and then there's the restaurant the chicken restaurant which has got an offensive uh, name for the restaurant
0: which, which was a real place.
1: Yeah, and then it turns out, yeah, it was a real place with like the entrance to the restaurant was these big red lips, which is like a kind of yeah. racial stereotype for yeah. Sambo. So with,
0: with apologies to everything everyone listening, there was a product called Sambo, which they referred to in the show, which is a real thing. There's a toothpaste called Darky, which is, honestly, some of you are watching it and you, it just it goes in your ears and you go, did I actually hear that? And then at the end it shows you, yep, there used to be a tooth, toothpaste like that. Assume based on the stereotype that you know of of black people having big white smiles you know um and you just think wow and 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 i think that that's what was good about the film because i mean some of the it's made very very cheaply i mean some of those alternative film clips and footage they look like uh they were done you know they, they blatantly look like they were done recently they weren't very you know uh, perfectly done and they were obviously done with whatever actors they could get a hold of but the the tone and the writing and the style i thought was very very good
1: yeah, it was it was a very good idea and I think with an actual budget behind it it would it would be a lot more interesting to look into. Um but there's a bit the bit with the, the chicken restaurant where it's got the, the black woman like being like a kind of submissive slave, that kind of stereotypical yeah. stereotypical image. My, my housemate walked in and saw the name of the restaurant and he went, Fucking hell, surely not. And <laughs> He yeah. even, even when he thought it was satirical, he thought that like the doc- the mockumentary was being like very on the nose, and turns out the place was a real restaurant mm. in the fifties and that. So
0: yeah, and and I think I think that the, the merit of the film is not whether their version of alternative history is completely convincing; it's how much of what they put up on screen isn't fucking alternative history. It's actual history. You yeah, know?
1: It's a lot of similarities. Um,
0: yeah, yeah. And I, I think the reason that it appealed to me as a show is that so, uh, uh, I was expecting it to be like this and I, I, I think it turned out to be the case is that I think if you watch things like Fox News, if you ever see, you know, clips of it, you know, or, or, or watch just if, if it's ever on your service and you watch it for an hour or some of this like One American News Network and these the people who, you know, the stuff that's going out on social media for the people that stormed the Capitol, they have their own alternative history, you know. There's, there's this white nationalist mindset which looks not a million miles away from what's in this film. And I think the the fact that, you know, that's not exactly how something turned out in, in, in history is almost beside the point now when you look at what people believe nowadays. I thought it was really interesting to see there were some really clever things like, you know, these people have got an innate anti Semitism, but they'll jump through some logical hoops to support certain Jews if it serves their purpose. Um, you know, a care- how a carefully controlled message about people's history can completely change what people are like, which explains a lot about Russia today, explains a lot about South Africa under apartheid. Although it was really, it was really interesting in that way because I think you can watch that and go, okay, well, that alternative history didn't happen, but. That really looks chillingly like what a lot of people think and believe, and you see some of these like gobshites pounding away on, um, on uh, you know, cable network and social media like fake news, you know.
1: Yeah, inbred. Um, <laughs> yeah, but no, I, I thought it was it was it was obviously it wasn't a perfect you know production. It was obviously it, it, was, it was a bit very, shaky, wasn't it? But it, the idea was there, and the, the, the it wasn't. The, there's obviously some loopholes, and that were being very nitpicky about. And that's obviously not the point of it, the point of it is to just kind of show, you know, similarities and what, you know, what we consider alien in terms of, you know, these offensive restaurants, offensive adverts and things like that. But it's actually similar to stuff that was mm-hmm. going on in the 50s and 60s. Um,
0: yeah, definitely. Definitely.
1: But yeah, I, I, I thought it was quite good.
0: Yeah. And I think when you, you know, we're about to talk about some other um, shows uh, or, or films to do with America, American history. And I think sometimes you, you just need to be reminded that, you know, segregation is in living memory, you know um so it really is interesting to to watch especially this is an african-american voice who went on to write some quite big films with Spike lee so it's yeah. interesting i think the writing you know i was some of the stuff i watched visually i went oh, this is a bit it's a bit kind of you know this has been done for two pound fifty but the writing although the writing was very clever showed showed this guy knows what he's doing you know
1: yeah no it was it was a solid production around with a big budget behind it i think it'd be an excellent yeah um, an excellent film so it's an interesting one to watch. I think
0: we're recommending that other people watch it if they can. Maybe it's on. Maybe it's easier to watch in America. I know we do have a we do have a few viewers over there. So if you can see it, have it have a go. See what you think, and maybe getting the word out might get this uh, get this shown because as low budget and sort of like minor uh, milestone in cinematic history it is. I think it does deserve a watch if 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 someone will put it up somewhere to watch by legitimate means. And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say so why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. For episode 10 we're bending the rules a little bit by featuring a film that's only recently been released and whose fate in the history of film is not yet fully decided but we felt it deserved inclusion for reasons which will become clear. This month's hidden gem is One Night in Miami. So, James, this was your suggestion for the episode. So, why don't you introduce this film for the audience?
1: Yeah, I think although it's just come out and it's on a massive uh, streaming platform, I think what kind of summarizes the the way I feel about it being a hidden gem is that one of the readers said, "I, you know, I I nearly missed this because a release date yeah. wasn't put." So, I think it's one of these films that's kind of gone under the radar, even though it's got an excellent cast and a you know, a big directing um, directorial debut for. a a black woman doing such a good strong job. Um I think it deserves it does it deserve more notice. I think I think the problem is that most films that are com- being released on streaming platforms now are hidden gems unless it is Wonder Woman 84 because that's a massive franchise kind of thing.
0: Yeah, and Amazon and Netflix don't, you know, they don't pay for TV advertising slots, do they? They don't run trailers, right? And you're not in the cinema to see trailers for other films that are out at the moment, are you? So the whole advertising
1: but yeah, in terms of Hidden Gem, it's uh, I don't think it's I've, I think I, you're the only person I know that's watched it. Um, yeah. But I think if we actually get into discussing the film, I thought it was excellent. I thought it was very, very, very good.
0: Yeah. So for for the benefit of the audience, this is this is one of those classic examples of a film that was made of a quite a successful play. This started out as a stage play in 2013, uh, the same name, One Night in Miami. Um, it was a very well received uh, stage production. Um, which uh, they then decided would would work as a film. And like a lot of films of that nature, it, it's got its own kind of genre. Films based on plays are not going to have car chases in them. They're not going to have um, uh, the kind of narrative that you get in a film where you cut from scene to scene. It's going to be based much more closely around character dialogue and a smaller number of settings uh, in, in which the action takes place. This is about a real event. It's been very heavily fictionalized because I don't think anyone knows 100% what, uh, what went on that night, apart from the four people that were there. But it uh, it's it set in 1964. Um, it's the evening after Muhammad Ali won his first title, world title fight, became the world heavyweight champion, beating Sonny Liston, who's still called Cassius Clay at that point, and he's 22. And that evening, he met up with friends of his, and talk about having famous friends. So um, Cassius Clay meets up with Malcolm X, uh, NFL star Jim Brown, and... Uh, Singer Sam Cooke. Uh, The next day, Cassius Clay publicly announced he was converting to Islam uh, and later took the name Muhammad Ali. Ten months after this uh, night, Sam Cooke was shot and killed, the circumstances of which are still disputed. Almost exactly a year later, Malcolm X was assassinated. Uh, And Jim Brown is less well known over here, but not long after this, he decided he was going to be an actor um, and basically told the NFL to fuck off, treating him like an indentured servant and started calling the shots in a movie career in uh, things like the Dirty Dozen and went on to be the first black action movie star. So this is a, a a night that's fascinated a lot of people. What did these guys talk about in Malcolm X's hotel room in Miami, sitting together, four amazing people in the middle of some pretty incredible events, and this film imagines what happens?
1: Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't summarize it uh, better myself. In terms of the actual accuracy of it, obviously this is a completely fictional
0: um, it, it, it could be, it could be spot on. It could be completely inaccurate because it, the writers just had to use his imagination, is not he?
1: Very speculative. Kent Powers, the writer who also wrote the stage play, has basically said mm-hmm. that he looked at the four characters' personalities on that night mm-hmm. and tried to imagine what they would have spoken about. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the conversation and the way the conversation is run is actually through Malcolm X. Um, yeah, it's I like kind of, he got them together for a reason, almost. Yeah. It, um, and I think that that would probably be quite accurate because Malcolm X was a very outspoken kind of guy, especially at this time he was getting even more um, mm-hmm. as well, uh, militant is the right word. Cause that's got some connotations. I don't mean he was a terrorist, but I mean, he was very, he was becoming a lot more headstrong in terms of what he was saying. He didn't, he was paranoid in terms of being assassinated, but he, didn't give a fuck he was a he was ready to like die for what he believed in kind of thing
0: if you if you're going to put it in terms that relate to you know race relations in america in the modern era he was um at the point where he was going to say asking nicely hasn't worked uh and you know people are going to keep asking nicely for so long and i think that um was really inflammatory at the time because black people were supposed to know their place but also i think because people were very frightened because they knew damn well that black people had good reason to be pissed off and if someone was going to draw their attention to that fact it could really shake things up so people were scared of him and not necessarily because he was going to come into the house and kill them it's because he was um he was saying stuff people knew was true and didn't want to be said in a lot of ways
1: uh yeah he was a very inflammatory gentleman to put it that way he would say stuff like uh, it's mentioned in the film but he um, sam cook challenges him and says you said uh, good riddance when jfk died and he said no i didn't say good riddance it was the chickens coming home to roost kind of thing mm-hmm. and they're all kind of disgusted at that kind of that kind of thought which um
0: Yeah, because no one wants, you know, it's like one of those things, you know, don't say something like that when someone's just been killed. It's obviously traumatic. The president's been assassinated. But, you know, one might point out that John F. Kennedy had signed off on assassination attempts on Fidel Castro and assassinations of black leaders by the American government had happened a number of times. And he was kind of saying, well, you know, if assassinating people is bad, why don't you guys stop as well? Which is still controversial and I'm not sure I agree with him. Do you know what I mean? But it wasn't. Ju- it, it wasn't. Ju- it didn't come out of the blue when he said that. Do you know what I mean?
1: He also called uh, Martin Luther King's speech uh, "I Have a Dream" the farce of Washington or something like that, um, mm-hmm. which is mental because Martin Luther King, Doctor Martin Luther, uh, Doctor Martin Luther King Jr. is a fucking legend. He was. Well,
0: uh, I tell you what's really interesting about the, the, this period because less so Jim Brown because um, he wasn't as political. Uh, and we'll come to how he fits in the story uh, as we talk about the film. But definitely Sam Cooke, uh, Muhammad Ali and, and Malcolm X, they were in the process of evolving in quite important ways uh, You know, when this meeting happened. And Mal- Malcolm X did his uh, pilgrimage to Mecca and he kind of broke away from the Nation of Islam because he felt that they were taking a piss out of their members and, 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 and not appropriate. The version of Islam that he saw when he went to Mecca was people of all races... Um, together. And I think he was some of the stuff that he would have said before. I don't think he was going to be any less outspoken. I don't think he was going to be any less militant about black rights. If he had lived to sit down with Martin Luther King, I think you'd have seen a different conversation because Martin Luther Luther King was becoming more radical just before he was killed. And Sam Cooke was killed, you know, less than a year after this as well. And he had just started to be more um, outspoken as well. I was going to say, the actual film is, what's interesting about it is you've got four people who have all experienced racism, who are all about to become or have already become very influential black figures, but they all approach that in very different ways. And obviously the film looks at these four very different viewpoints, doesn't it? Even though they're friends and even though they've had very similar experiences, they all have quite a different take on, on what
1: they've experienced and what they're going to do about it, don't they? Yeah, it's almost all the conversation and, you know, discussion comes through malcolm x Kind, he definitely antagonizes sam cook he, he's uh, really gone after sam cook in the film isn't he he, do- he kind he of do- he he doesn't really go after muhammad ali or Cassius clay at this time because he's converting to islam and he's kind of like his his prodigy so to speak i know mm-hmm. that yeah. also becomes an issue later in the film uh, without giving away too many spoilers but the actual the actual discussion that's had is that Malcolm X is annoyed at Sam Cooke because Sam Cooke is liked by white people. He makes music about, you know, at this time, Sam Cooke had never performed a change going to come. He had something in the works, but he never actually mm-hmm. performed it. He'd never released yeah. it. He, um, he, all of his songs were things like what a wonderful world you send me Cupid. I'm a massive Sam Cooke fan. So I, I, all of his music was all about, you know, being in love or you know, breaking up with someone or just stuff like yeah. the good times, which is just him having a good time at a party and things like that. And the problem that Malcolm X took with this is that he was um he he the way it's portrayed in the film is that Malcolm X watched the Sam Cooke gig where Jackie Wilson allegedly cut the electricity for one of Sam yeah. Cook gigs so you couldn't hear him. So he starts doing chain gang a cappella. So um and he just, Malcolm X watches Sam Cooke basically mesmerize the entire room by getting everyone to do the stomping and clapping and the grunting for the song, Pain yeah. Gang. And he made the line is, brother, yeah. you could move mountains. So Malcolm X's frustration is that, you know, you have such a powerful voice. Because Sam Cooke is, he's got the most beautiful voice in my of any singer. He's the king of soul. He's one of the founders of uh, Rhythm and Blues. Well, not founders of Rhythm and Blues, but he's one of the pioneers of Rhythm and Blues. He's. Yeah he's got such a good voice and Malcolm X's frustrations that all of his songs are about being in love with women. Sam Cooke's perspective is very interesting because what he's
0: saying is it's valid to be a successful black person in a society that's trying to hold you down. It's valid to be successful and it's valid to bring other black people forward because you own run your own record label. And he's empowering people by doing that. And again, I think every person who watches this film can watch these four people and take their own kind of viewpoint away. But I think the film did a really nice job of saying, well, this is what Sam Cooke's got to say for himself in response to
1: that, you know? Well, without going into many spoilers, he basically makes the point that Malcolm X is wanting there to be bright. Black stars, in terms of you know, Muhammad Ali is now the world champion, and Muhammad Ali is as yeah. out there as he gets. He will antagonize anyone, he will take the piss out of anyone. That was what Muhammad, that's what, that's what made everyone who loved Muhammad Ali love Muhammad Ali because he was that guy. Yeah. I love me, died to bits. Um,
0: and even the people who didn't like Muhammad Ali during his boxing career would still fill a stadium
1: watching him to watch his next fight, right? In case he lost, which he never, which he really did, sorry. Yeah. Um, and then Jim Brown again, he made, Malcolm X makes, makes the point for like Jim Brown and that he's, you know, you know funding, you know, um, Kind of sponsorships for, uh, you know, underprivileged black people and things like that. Malcolm X is basically antagonizes uh, Sam Cooke for a good twenty minutes of the film, and Sam. Oh,
0: Cook the sparks really fly between those two characters,
1: doesn't it? It's brilliant. Um, but just, without trying to give too much away, Sam Cooke kind of makes a reply that's like, okay, so you're seeing it from face value that the only songs I write are. Um, love songs and that Rolling Stones released a song that Bobby Womack wrote um, and Bobby Womack's version got to 94th in the Billboard charts the Rolling Stones version got to number one I see your point mm. that the black version of the song was 94th and the band from Britain which is four, four or yeah, five white the, guys. The, the white the guys borrowing them. black music, right? So yeah. Sam Cook's resp- response is, is that Bobby Womack was crushed. Side note, Bobby Womack is a cunt and a piece of shit. Just for a side note, he married Sam Cooke's widow three months after uh, Sam Cooke died. He showed up to Sam Cooke's funeral wearing Sam Cooke's suit. He's a fucking arsehole, but he's, the point's made in the film. I just wanted to make that point yeah, out. Yeah, so sure. Bobby yeah, Womack sure. was a cunt, a horrible fucking toxic arsehole. Anyway... Um, but the point is, Bobby Womack was crushed. Good, but he, um, he Sam Cummings, but he was crushed for about three months until the royalty paychecks came in. Because although it was performed by the Rolling Stones, the writer gets a chunk. And he said, "You can still be a successful black man in this world where they are being oppressed and they're being brought down, but you don't have to be as brashy and you know loud about it." you know and sam cook also makes the yeah. point of like okay i've just because i've released a load of love songs doesn't mean i have not got songs in the work i just haven't finished them yet it doesn't mean i don't care about the movement um, yeah. which is really at the easy. same time
0: at the same, same time some of what malcolm x does hit home on sam cook a little bit and he does kind of in his heart of hearts kind of feel oh, maybe i haven't said enough and i think that's what's interesting because you get you get both sides of all of these characters don't you because on the other hand malcolm is you know um that you know sam cook has a few things to say about the way malcolm does things and a lot of it is you know, if you were going to parallel it to now, you would say, uh, is it actually that helpful to put everyone's backs up? Of course you've got a grievance. We've all got a grievance. But if all you're going to do is push, p- piss people off, are you doing any good? And that's that was like part of Sam Cooke's counter-argument to Malcolm, wasn't it?
1: Yeah. Um, other than that, before we kind of get into like the positives and the performances, there's another really good moment in the film where um, Malcolm X's house was famously firebombed. at shown in the... Um, yeah. 1992 Spike film and it's shown in this as well Spike Lee yeah. film. Probably. Um, yeah. But there's a really good moment after that where they've all they've all had the night in Miami, and they've all had their drinks. Well, obviously Malcolm X didn't have his drinks, but they've all celebrated Muhammad Ali's win, and then Sam Cooke's performing. What is he performing? I think he's performing good times, which is like another one of those Sam Cooke classics. He sits yeah. down with the the white interviewer and the white interviewer he goes, "Wow, that was really good. That was really something, Sam. You know how are you get on with this? How do you how do you find inspiration for your songs?" And then he goes, "Could you f- sing another song for us?" And he goes, uh, "There's something I've been working on. Only a few friends of friends." Yeah. And uh, Malcolm X is watching it, and then he sings for the first time on TV. A change going to come. Um. And Malcolm X is watching it, and he's just got tears coming in his coming down his face, which yeah, is a really yeah. nice one. Because although yeah, you don't really see the makeup on screen, you know that if they, you know, if they that they were to make up, it would have been at that point kind of thing.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, very good. Yeah, and and obviously, uh, you you get at the end, you get kind of I don't want to spoil it for people. Although this is all based, you know, based on real events. You get a little sort of you know footnote as to where where everyone's lives went after this night. Um, I thought Muhammad Ali was really interesting because obviously he was he's. His, uh, I, I always say Muhammad Ali, although he's still called Cassie at this time. He's he's always been Ali to me. Yeah. Um, he's only twenty two. He's thinking of converting to Islam. He hasn't quite, you know, got over the idea that he's not going to be able to, you know, uh, you know, have, you know, drink alcohol and meet women. Um, he's really looking up to Malcolm, hoping that Malcolm's going to kind of talk him through this change because he knows what a big change it is, and he's kind of on the brink of doing it. And obviously, being on the brink of doing something that that big, obviously, it makes you nervous. And it's really interesting to see this young, brash, world at his feet guy who's just won the world title, but at the same time, quite nervous about the direction he knows his life's about to go in. So I thought it was really interesting.
1: If we get into the nitty gritty of the performances, Sam uh, Leslie Odom Jr., Sam Cook is by far the best performance in this film in terms of the challenge he had being asked to basically record all of Sam Cook's greatest hits. Um, is no is no easy feat because Sam Cook has got a very distinctive and difficult voice to. Not match because Leslie Jordan is trying to match. He tries to match some mannerisms and like mouth movements of Sam Cooke, but at the at the end of the day, it's Leslie Jordan Jr. as Sam Cooke. But he does a great job of singing. You know these songs that are. Yeah, really, it was a hell of a performance, wasn't it? People didn't know a lot about Sam Cooke having a temper. People just see him as this guy who sings lovely love songs, but shown quite nicely in this film. He's yeah. very quick to stand up for himself. He's very quick to, you know, to tell Malcolm X that he's chatting absolute fucking shit, or tell him to go and fuck himself, or even antagonise Malcolm X himself. Because Malcolm yeah. X is very inflammatory in this film, which another great performance from, um, what's his name? Kingsley Benadir. Yeah, he's a British actor. Yeah, um, big shoes
0: to fill doing a role that Denzel Washington's played,
1: which he did better than Denzel Washington.
0: But I know, I know. I know when you when you said that, I went, "Oh, blimey, maybe I need to watch the uh, you know the the Spike Lee version again and and, and compare them because that is uh, that's it's a big statement." And I, I thought he was, I thought he was terrific actually. So you know, I am going to take what you said on board and have another watch to compare.
1: Yeah, no, it was it was it was really good. Um, I was surprised at the performance of. Um, What's his name? Something Gory. That's his name.
0: Eli Gory. Yeah. Eli
1: Gory of uh, Muhammad Ali. Uh, he plays it very well. He obviously got in really good shape to play Ali. He has that usual kind of cheeky um, nature that Muhammad Ali had. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was it was surprisingly kind of subtle. It was a side of Muhammad Ali that we haven't seen. The only the only performance I've seen of Muhammad Ali is Will Smith, and that's a very loud and brash performance. You know, it's, it covers the whole Vietnam era, which is kind of it's like a Muhammad Ali but ten years kind of older um yeah will will smith's performance was very much um he shows the public face of
0: ali so there's all the shout and all the performing and most of what you see in that if you watch when we were kings the amazing film about the rumble in the jungle that it recreates a lot of those scenes his big press conferences and then it kind of shows you in in probably more quite michael mann style doesn't it because it's a michael mann film Ali in his quiet moments, but it treats the two as very two very very different things, almost two slightly different people, like Ali is a public persona. Whereas this, as you say, it's kind of there's a lot more light and shade. He's he's one character he's he's that brash guy one minute, but then he's the shy twenty-two year old still taking all of this in like the very next minute, which I thought was a very a very different and very interesting interpretation of the character.
1: I thought that it was a really superb performance. And obviously Will Smith showed us more as Ali, but if this had been if you'd swapped uh, Eli Gorey for Will Smith and that Ali film obviously Eli Gorey must have been about four when that film yeah came. yeah yeah. but because um, he looks about on ages with me um, yeah but it was a really nice nuanced kind of performance of a guy that, you know he's got a lot of qualms with you know converting to islam you know he still he still drinks even though he's converted to islam he's prayed he's he's prayed with um, malcolm x that day before this fight but he still has drinks sam cook takes him to a liquor store and stuff like that yeah, and yeah. then he kind of he kind of feels embarrassed when malcolm x he's like oh well cash just won't be drinking anymore and he's like sam cook so we haven't smelled his breath in the last fucking hour then have you
0: yeah yeah because there's so, like then- there's almost a bit of like sam cook and 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 malcolm x are and Jim Brown. sort of yeah, and Jim Brown, the sort of older mentor characters yeah. to uh, to Ali in different ways because Jim Brown is obviously the he's the the other athlete in the room. So I yeah. think Ali listens to him in a lot of ways. And Sam Cook is you know uh, whatever Malcolm X has to say to Ali, Malcolm X can't tell Ali anything about what he's got to do yeah. when he's performing in front of an audience the way Sam Cook can. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. So, um, he's,
0: so Ali's getting different things from the three other guys in the room, isn't he?
1: Yeah, well, that, that was what was interesting, is that we actually saw an embarrassed and shy Muhammad Ali when Malcolm yeah, X was yeah. over, which we have never seen before, and I thought it was done really well. Whether it happened or whether it didn't, it, it's probably happened in Muhammad Ali's life where he's been embarrassed at some point. I, I did enjoy the fallouts that happened with Malcolm X, because Malcolm X seems like the kind of guy that would fucking really annoy the shit out of you if he was, if he was one of you, because he, yeah. I mean, he was a smart bloke, and he knows what he's on about, and he he knows how to kind of... Get not put words in your mouth, but get the reaction that he wants from you. It was, um and it was really nice to see people like um Sam Cooke and Muhammad Ali kind of falling out with him and getting pissed off at him.
0: Yeah, because what what you're going to get in a, in a, a filmed play like this, or an adaptation of a stage show like this, is it, it is going to be all about that continuing dynamic between the characters, this ensemble. And and it, it gives you that it gives you these uh, these different ups and downs and where they get to at the end of the night between the four of them you know I thought it was really interesting
1: yeah um obviously my favorite performance in this film is um, Leslie Lesley but I'm quite biased because he was incredible in Hamilton in his and then it's, yeah he's, I he's mean I thought never-
0: I thought they were all terrific um the guy playing Jim Brown he's um he's probably got the least work to do you know for for us as an audience Aldous Hodge does because. Jim Brown isn't as sort of famous for his mannerisms or, or his talking uh, as the others are. Otherwise, just imagine a Americans. <laughs> yeah, Amer- Americans who who watch this and kind of know Jim Brown better than us. I mean, I've seen him in the Dirty Dozen and a few movies, right? But I thought he inhabited the character very well. I think he gave a, a you know a very good performance. Probably quite considering all the other fireworks that's gone off in the other three characters. I think you know he had quite a good job, quite a hard job holding his own with us, and I thought he did, I thought he did well.
1: I think his performance. Sorry, his performance is actually. Is brilliant in the kind of subtlety. Like the best, I think the best mm. bit is when Sam Cook's fucked off and Muhammad Ali's gone after him and uh, Malcolm X is kind of taking a moment to kind of breathe because he's had a massive fallout with Sam Cook and <laughs> Jim Brown just stops and goes, This is a strange fucking night, man. <laughs> I thought
0: Regina King did a really nice job. I think as a as a an actor turning to directing, you're always going to expect them to do a project where a lot of the work they do is getting performances out of the actors because that's what they know. But she also did a nice job with all the additional scenes. For example, where she um, has to recreate the Ali Sonny Liston fight, which is a very famous fight. Um, The scene where Jim Brown goes back home and everyone's really the white people are really nice to him, but also really racist um malcolm x's house been firebombed she really opens it out well she doesn't just stick to the one set Mm. um you do have you know you know dustin hoffman directed one film other actors have directed one film you get the feeling she she's really you know she's actually got ambitions to be a director you know to do with george clooney and actually direct more films because she really she really got her teeth into this one i think as a director and she did the whole lot you know look it's been nominated for awards it's come out people who've watched it have liked it but like we said Um, in this environment, a film that's not a big blockbuster can get overlooked. Don't overlook this film. It's really worth a watch. And that's why we've done it as a hidden gem. And now for our One That Got Away feature, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen we look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realize their vision. For episode 10, we're looking at a true passion project for one of our favorite filmmakers, Spike Lee's Save Us Joe Lewis. So this would have been a biographical film about the famous boxer Joe Lewis, who was world champion in the 30s and for some of the 40s, and especially his two famous fights with German boxer Max Schmeling in 1936 and 1938. Um... Spike Lee, we obviously know very well. We've discussed him before on the podcast. Uh, a podcast. He rose to prominence in the late 80s Would Do the Right Thing. Malcolm X was a very big film for his in the 90s. Um, for the rest of the 90s, he made films that were consistently good but consistently unsuccessful at the box office. Uh, culminating in the absolutely brilliant Summer of Sam, which is my favorite Spike Lee film, um, but which flopped at the box office and is a future candidate for a hidden gem. The 2000s were a bit better. They were still patchy, but he had two of his biggest successes. 25th Hour, which was some critics' film of that decade and was a modest hit, and the excellent heist thriller Inside Man, which was a very big commercially uh, successful box office blockbuster. Most recently, he's hit something of a career peak with Black Klansman, which was a hit and won him a screenwriting Oscar, and last year's Five Bloods, which was one of the most-watched films of the year on Netflix. This film itself, um, I don't know how much you know about this, James. This has been a passion project he's talked about a lot, but I don't know how much you'd heard about it or found out about it when we started to do this as a no, feature.
1: I, just, I know Joe Lewis was a boxer way back when, you know, before even yeah. like the Muhammad Ali era. So that's kind of where my boxing knowledge kind of started, and I'm not even a big fan. Big, you Not know, big nerd when it comes to boxing. But I know that he was a big star back in the back in the 30s and 40s and that Spike Lee yeah. wanted to do a film about it with um, Arnold Schwarzenegger playing Max Schnelling. Was, uh, basically, all I know about it, but um, yeah. Yeah, so Spike Lee acquired the
0: rights to make this film in the year 2000, uh, and he worked on a script with Bud Shulman. Who he, Bud Shulman's an interesting guy. He's one of the most famous boxing writers there's ever been. He was actually inducted into the Boxing Hall of Fame for his work as a writer. So he's up there alongside actual boxers um, and trainers and things. He was also an Academy Award-winning screenwriter who wrote *On the Waterfront* in 1954. He was at both the fights in in the stadium for the Joe Louis Schmelling fight in 36 and 38, um, and they worked on this film together, which was going to be called Save Us, Joe Louis*. They worked on it for a number of years. There were intermittent updates in the 2000s to about 2011. At times it looked like it was going ahead, but by 2011, it looked like it had been abandoned altogether and and you know went into you know development help. this is one of four biopics spike lee wanted to make about prominent black historical figures he was in the frame to direct ali before it went to michael mann he wanted to do a jackie robinson film that fell through and um james brown film get on up um so he uh, there were quite a few important biopics he wanted to do that fell through uh, and I think sometimes they went for less controversial directors. Um, the Joe Louis one, no one else has done it. The other ones have all been done by other people. Um, reading up on the events of the fight and Joe Lewis's career, you can totally see why Spike Lee would be so interested in filming it and why you know they'd want to write a screenplay. So in the '30s, Joe Lewis is a hero of the African American people. At a time when it wasn't easy to be that. And and there's a little bit of history to go into. The most prominent black boxer before Joe Lewis had been a guy called Jack Johnson, who was the first black heavyweight champion in, in 1908. Right. Pre, prior to that, he'd been the colored heavyweight champion because, of course, they had segregated boxing divisions back then. And his reputation cast a shadow over any big-name black fighter for decades after his the end of his career. Because because Jack Johnson, he was notorious at the time. He had the sheer gall to you know enjoy his success. He went out for a drink in nice clothes. He owned fancy cars. And at a time when it could actually get you literally lynched, he married white women three times, three different women. Now, if he were around now, by twenty-first century boxing standards, he'd be known as that quiet lad Jack Johnson. But back then, he was incendiary, and even years later, um, this was—you uh, know—that this hung over everyone. If you ever heard the phrase "the Great White Hope," that phrase was coined because as soon as Jack Johnson became heavyweight champion, the, the nationwide search went to find a white boxer who could beat him, and that's what "Great White Hope" means. It's amazing how racist, you know, seemingly s- simple phrases are um you know interestingly the great white hope became a film with james Earl jones playing a fictional version of jack johnson now that little diversion is just because that was hanging over joe lewis when he became a big thing in heavyweight boxing he had all the attributes everyone was looking at him to be a fighter he was a huge hero to african-americans uh, at the time but he was really conscious in his management really conscious of how controversial jack johnson had been and joe lewis had a, had a, a code of conduct always be humble never trash talk your opponent, never gloat when you've won, and never ever be seen alone with a white woman. Decades later, when the baton's been passed on to a new champion, Muhammad Ali called Joe Lewis an Uncle Tom because of all this, which in the circumstances is perhaps a bit unfair. But he's a hugely important figure. The the famous writer Maya Angelou described in one of her memoirs, watching one of his early fights, and said it felt like the hopes of all African-Americans rested on whether Joe Lewis won or lost. Max Schmeling is an interesting character as well. He won the world title in 1930 and then lost it again in controversial decision. He was still a prominent fighter in 1936. He wanted his own title shot. Um, he was proud to be German, but he wasn't a Nazi. He refused to join the party. He wouldn't take part in in big propaganda and stuff um, that Hitler wanted to use him for. Uh, Schmeling's trainer was Jewish, which was you know a, a tricky thing to to have in his life at the time. And he spent a lot of time in the US because that's where his fights were. Um, because of his relationship with Nazi Germany was quite awkward. He was offered the chance to defect and become a US citizen. And he didn't want to do that because he didn't want to give up his German nationality, but he was also worried about what Hitler would do to his family. So this is the two very interesting characters with very um, complicated relationships with their own countries going into this fight. The 1936 fight wasn't even a title fight. It was who got a chance to have a title shot, but it was huge. It was in Madison. It was in the Yankee stadium, massive boxing match. Um, and, Schmeling was seen as a bit um, uh, past it. And I think Joe Lewis didn't probably prepare as well as he should have done for the fight. He played more golf than he went training, lost the fight and thought, oh, wow, this is a, a big setback. Um, but in the end, it, Joe Lewis was the one who got the title shot. And it all came down to politics because they were really worried that if Schmeling won the title against the, the champion, James Braddock, that then Nazi Germany controls the heavyweight champion of the world, Right. Joe Lewis isn't going to get the title shot because the Nazis are not going to let Schmeling fight a black boxer. So Joe Lewis's management really needed to get in first and have a title shot um, if they were going to ever get a chance at all. So the existing champion that James Braddock could name his Price. And not just a massive fee for the fight, but he got 10% of Joe Lewis's fight earnings for the next 10 years just for getting in the ring. So the politics around this um, match is already really huge, and for this match, by now, it's 1938. Germany is very much the international bad guy. And despite a lot of racist attitudes towards Joe Lewis in, in America, they really wanted him to win the fight. Schmelling's the bad guy, slagging him off in the press. But the press coverage of Joe Lewis is really weird. On the one hand, they really want him to beat Schmelling. But on the other hand, boxing writers in national newspapers, you know, respectable media, are calling him a lazy, fried chicken eating, simple Negro who didn't have any boxing intelligence. So. What's going through Joe Lewis's head when all this is happening, I can only imagine, right? Joe Lewis beats Schmeling in, in the rematch and becomes world champ, you know, defends his title. He's, he's now seen as one of the greatest boxers, one of the greatest champions. Um Max Schmeling said later, he was almost glad he lost the fight because if he'd won, it would have been propaganda for the Nazis, which he wasn't keen on. Then they have different experiences in world war two. Joe Lewis is almost like um the black captain America. He goes around from place to place, rallying the troops, you know, like, like Chris Evans at the start of captain America. Um, Max Schmelling, because he lost and was on the wrong side of the Nazis. And oh, by the way, Max Schmelling also saved two Jewish kids from being killed on Kristallnacht. So Max Schmelling's in the middle of a really tricky life as well. And because Hitler had kind of lost his his love for Max Schmelling, he was conscripted into the paratroopers and sent into loads of serious missions and only just survived the war. Um, after the war, Joe Lewis declined. Um, you know, like a lot of these boxers, he was people took the piss out of I mean, he lost a lot of his money, he Had the tax man, you know, huge tax bills and had ill health and poor, you know, poor financial decisions. But in his later years, he was really close friends with Matt Schmeling, who um, had done quite well after retirement. And Matt helped Joe Lewis out financially, helped him with medical bills, um, even paid for Joe Lewis's funeral when he died. Another close friend of Joe Lewis was the drug kingpin Frank Lucas, who once paid off a $50,000 tax fine for Joe Lewis. Uh, and Frank Lucas, you'll recall, was played by Denzel Washington, an American gangster, so Joe Lewis had some yeah. colourful friends. So no wonder Spite Lee wants to make a film about this story, because it's fucking cinematic gold. I mean, you've got a guy who's trying to keep the Nazis off his back, you've got a guy who's hated by his own country, even though they wanted to beat Max Schmeling, you've got everything that's going on for black people in the 1930s, you've got Nazi Germany in World War II, you've got him being friends with gangsters, and this whole decline of Joe Lewis. I mean, I mean Spite Lee must have... Um, well, actually, if, if you if you read about the making of the film, it was the question was what to leave out
1: because so many interesting things happened to these two guys. No, it sounds like a real shame that that didn't get made. Um, I don't really yeah. have anything to add because you've 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 told the story quite nicely, and it sounds like every really, whenever it seems like a perfect film for Spike Lee to make. It's you know, it's got it's got it's not really got like antagonists so to speak. It's got two guys who are almost the same, just from different kind of backgrounds. Yeah.
0: Um. Very interesting sporting rivalry, like something like um, the T Grand Prix drivers in Rush, you know, totally different worlds, but who else understands what their lives are like, you know?
1: Yeah, I, wish we, I hope we would try and make that again, because it's not a story that's been told. It's, uh... No, it hasn't.
0: And it, it's really interesting. There's uh, there's so much mythology around Joe Lewis, because the, the, the save, save Us Joe Lewis is based on uh, an apocryphal story. It's it's actually not true. It's an urban myth. But a young black man in the 30s that was about to be executed in the gas chamber um the story went around that he cried out save me joe lewis he didn't cry for his mum he didn't you know pray to god to be saved he prayed to joe lewis to be saved right and it didn't happen but the fact that people believed it kind of tells you something
1: about how important this yeah. guy was to black people okay no that's a really so, interesting story
0: so the story of spike lee's attempt to make this film it, it's kind of one you've heard all before he got the rights um he couldn't get the funding that he really wanted to make this. Bud Shawberg gave an interview in the mid 2000s to say they'd got about $35 million from Disney, but that was about half of what Spike needed. So they were looking for someone else to put up the money. Looks like that never transpired. Um, so it was on and off while they were trying to get it done. There was talk of Arnie playing Matt Schmelling. There was talk of Hugh Jackman playing Matt like later on. Um, Spike Lee said in an interview in the mid 2000s he'd had talks with Terrence Howard to play Joe Lewis, which would have been interesting. Um, and in the end, it just, just didn't happen, uh, you know, because Spike Lee was not quite, you know, uh, he's obviously hugely respected as a filmmaker, but not quite a big box office enough and a bit too controversial at the time to to be given the backing that he needed to do this film. So, you know, it slipped through his fingers. Um, if you imagine the film that it would be like, I think there was, like I say, there was, it was a huge epic script going around in the early 2000s, which was about, it would have been a, well over three hours long and it covered every major incident. Um, I think they would have probably changed that because you can't, much as you'd love to, I don't think you could do everything that happened between these two guys. Um, but obviously, I think he's looking at Lewis, uh, Joe Lewis and Max Manning on different levels. They had a sporting rivalry and their subsequent friendship. It was who they were, what they represented to other people. There was the contradictions and how they were perceived and treated. And in terms of what it might look like, I mean, Spike Lee's done a couple of period films. I mean, Malcolm X is you know, a, a period film in, you know, in the sense it goes back to the 1940s. Mo' Better Blues is set in the 60s. He did a war film, Miracle, at St. Anna's. So, you know, you get an idea of how Spike Lee might film, you know, older periods. I mean, when you think about it, Black Klansman was set four years in the past as well. So you can see what he would try and do with with with, with the period setting. He's done sports films before as well because he got games all about basketball and he's shown a few baseball-related stuff in, in, in his films as well. So you get an idea. I also think he might have... Um, into five bloods when he had two different timelines he has you know older and, and younger versions of the same character it would be interesting to see how he would have treated this I mean there was talk of him hiring older actors like Maximilian Schell to play Matt Schmelling, an older actor to play Joe Lewis as well um, interestingly into five bloods they just got the older actors to play the young, the younger selves but obviously he's trying to do something very just different
1: there yeah no, I think what what could be an interesting way to do this production if you want to include both the lives or not just the lives of both men, and not just have about Joe Lewis, is do what Clint Eastwood did with The Letters from Iwo Jima and Flags of Our Fathers. What two films? Yeah, with the same actors and everyone just
0: flipped. Maybe that would that would be really interesting. Given given we talked a little bit about what went down between Clint Eastwood and Smiley, it'd be very interesting if that's if that was the way he did it. That's a very I didn't think of that. It's a very interesting. Just do the same do, actors every
1: same epitome, but just two emotions like emotions. I don't know if I've just been watching too much Cobra Kai, but um, two different just, viewpoints. Yeah, two different viewpoints about the same kind of issue or same kind of fight or same point in their lives, and just the lead up to that. Because then you have about it. Would, I mean, that would cost a fuckload of money, but it would, yeah, um, yeah, it would be yeah, an interesting way to do it, I guess.
0: I mean, definitely the the whole thing kind of plays perfectly in Spike Lee's preferred style. And I mean, Spike Lee's actually done some very different styles of film. And you look at like Inside Man. I mean, that's um, that's very kind of, he's, he's done a heist film and he's done it in the style of things like Dog Day Afternoon more than he's done a Spike Lee film in that sense. So he can kind of do whatever style he wants. But there is always an element of the way Spike Lee makes films, you know, cutting to news clips, facts about what happened, references to how the story is relevant today, people talking to Cameron. You know, he, he, a lot of these flourishes he likes, to, he likes to put into his films, like in Black Klansman when I thought it was brilliant at the end of Black Klansman, where a lot, a lot, a lot of the way through Black Klansman, you're going, isn't it hilarious that a black man's infiltrated the KKK and yeah. run rings around these redneck idiots? But then at the end when they show the burning cross and then all the footage of other things that happened, he goes, no, actually this is really serious. And the way Spike Lee puts his stories in that kind of perspective he would have so much scope to do all of that with this movie if, if he'd had a chance to do it.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's a shame that he seems to have not kind of renewed his interest in it. Um, well,
0: funnily enough, he has actually talked about it getting made. This is the film that he constantly goes back to. Whenever Spike leaves an interview and says, you know, are there are any films that you ha- haven't done, he always comes back to this one. And he actually said as recently as last year, he still wants to make this film. It was the dying wish of Bud Schulberg, the, the writer that he was going to make it. He, and in fact, in, in last year, he sounded more confident than ever before that he could actually get this film made. And he's, he's promising that he didn't get this done. Now, I know Spike Lee says a lot, but he really sounds like he wants to do this. And I, I was wondering maybe that he's gotten Netflix money now. He, he said that Netflix gave him more money to do Five Bloods than he'd you know, ever had to make a film before. And, and the technology and resources, I think, would be more achievable now to do a film in a period setting like he wants. Um, and he's on a bit of a roll now, you know, Black Klansman and, and The Five Bloods have both been very big, I think he's he's almost got this kind of national treasure status, which maybe maybe he can get this made now.
1: Yeah, I hope so, because that, that sounds really interesting, I had
0: no idea. And I mean, the climate for these films now as well is, I think there was a time when Spike Lee would want to make a film and everyone's going, Spike, can you tone it down a bit? And he was in no mood to tone it down, because he's a very outspoken guy. But I don't think people want these stories to be toned down anymore. So I think that I think there's a genuine appetite to make this film. Um, obviously, I talked about you know possible casting if they were to do it now. I mean, I, just because I watched the film recently, I thought about all this Hodge, the guy who played Jim Brown, but he doesn't really look like him. He's also uh, there's that guy Robert. That the, the 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 listener wrote in and said about Robert Richard, I had to look him up. He does actually look like Joe Lewis, but the, the actor's about five foot nine, and, and Joe Lewis was six foot two. So I, I think that's well, an Joe Lewis. That big. Maybe, Big maybe, guy, yeah.
1: Maybe the guy who played Jim Brown could look Um,
0: I was thinking Corey Hawkins out straight out of Compton.
1: Shout? That's a good show. Who played Dr. Dre? Um, John David Washington. was always a shout.
0: Yeah, I mean, the thing is, wh- whoever plays Joe Lewis is going to be considerably better looking than, than Joe Lewis really was, because, you know, that's Hollywood. But okay. I think John David Washington would. Um, He doesn't look very much like Joe Lewis, but you know, he could do the part. You know, he could play the character. Such a good actor.
1: Yeah, I mean, Leslie Odom Jr. doesn't look like Sam Cooke, but, you know.
0: Leslie Odom Jr. gave that performance that, like, afterwards you look at Sam Cooke and go, oh, no, he looks nothing like him. But while the film's on, you believe that's him, you know? Yeah, so... So maybe they could get that kind of actor.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think of, like, actors that are the right age. Although, see, with, like, black people, it doesn't really matter because Leslie Odom Jr.'s... um, Nearly forty, and he's playing Sam Cook in this, and Sam Cook's about thirty three. So uh, it doesn't really as matter because black people age magnificently, you know. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I ID'd a guy at work once, and he was um his day was made up. He was born in nineteen seventy nine, and I ID'd him what in like two thousand and nineteen, so he was nearly forty. Yeah, yeah. And was, like he's just made yeah, a day yeah. because uh, it's
0: so hard yeah, to he tell. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and play getting an actor to play him like who's older than young Joe Lewis, and maybe and younger than old joe lewis you could almost get away with having one guy play the character throughout the whole time timeline of the film as well couldn't you
1: yeah i suppose i suppose that and that's what probably plays in plays into someone's favor um
0: yeah i mean so we've talked about different like um ones that got away here i mean the first one I, i ever did in the first episode was about john carpenter's uh you know version of uh uh, Firestarter, that's never going to happen. Other ones, who have speculated about whether it could happen, like Quentin Tarantino's Silver Surfer. This feels like one that could actually happen, and I'm really excited by that prospect.
1: Yeah, it's, it sounds really good. I hope, it, I hope it gets made now.
0: Yeah, me too. We close the first reel of the episode with the remake Hate Watch*. This is where we relax our usual calm and balanced approach to our film discussions and rant at the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom. Whether they call it a remake, a reboot, a reimagining, we don't like it and we want it to stop. There are, of course, examples of good remakes when they were justified and well done. This feature does not discuss those films. What we look at here are remakes that disrespected the memory of a film when they should have left well alone. Last month, we found a remake that wasn't as bad as you might expect and which didn't really deserve a hate watch at all. This month I can assure you that the film we are featuring fully deserves the hate watch treatment and we are not going to hold back. The remake hate watch for episode 10 is the 2006 Steve Martin version of the Pink Panther. So for the benefit of the audience, I, I watched this. I paid, I can't believe I paid money to rent <laughs> this uh, from Amazon to watch it. Um, but James, you um, you let me know that you, you you weren't going to watch it and explained why, and, and I think it gives a good indication of how we feel about this film if you just like to explain that for our audience
1: yeah i just flat out fucking refuse so basically what what happens is about two days before the podcast is filmed or recorded i should say i start watching all the films so they're still fresh in my memory i mean i watched one night in miami when it came out last month and then i watched it again last night and then i watched confederate states of america the day before and then i do a little bit of reading about you know the ones (coughs) that got away and like do a little refresher on like you know news um and then it came to last night and I was planning to watch the Pink Panther, and I've got every streaming service, you know, Sky Go as well. I looked everywhere; Pink Panther wasn't on Sky Go, it wasn't on Netflix. Um, and I went to um the Microsoft Store on my Xbox, and it was seven ninety nine to buy the film outright in standard definition to watch this film. And I just, I, I just, I just messaged my dad. I just went to him. I said, "So, <laughs> 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 what did I say?" i said okay so i have one thing to watch for the pod to and it's pig panther and i can only watch it for 7.99 in standard definition fuck that i refuse to spend actual fucking currency on that shit um but yeah that that was my take on it i refuse to pay actual money to watch this film i think i've seen a little bit of it when it first came out 15 years ago but yeah this is very much my dad taking the lead on this one
0: yeah and i think that's kind of you know Sometimes you do that. Sometimes you say this remake should never have happened. I refuse to watch it. And then because we watched the Karate Kid last month, it turns out this—you uh, uh, know—perhaps we had been a bit harsh in our judgment. I can assure you, we're not being harsh in our judgment here. So let, let, let's give people a bit of background to the film. As um, it's the whole thing. The original Pink Panther was a vehicle for Peter Sellers. He, you know, came out of you know the radio with the goons in the fifties. He was—he uh, gained a reputation for comic brilliance, playing in like eating comedies opposite Alec Guinness. You then like used Alec Guinness's kind of style, playing multiple roles in the same film. He's in Stanley Kubrick films like Lolita and Doctor Strangelove. The Pink Panther was much more lowbrow than that side of Sellers, but it shows that side of him, which is all about pure clowning and belly laughs. He's like Mr Bean for Rowan Atkinson. Yeah, it's you know pure you know clowning comedy. Pink Panther was also his kind of fallback role. The films always did well and got him awards nominations. Uh, he would try other stuff in other films, which didn't always work, and he was tough to deal with at times, and some people refused to work with him. Then he'd go back and do a Pink Panther film and all be right in the world again. So those films are fondly remembered. They're silly. They're not classics in you know every sense of the term, but they're great fun to watch. This remake completely desecrates that legacy. Now, fair to say there were a couple of really bad sequels a listener wrote in about them, the Pink Panther that tarnished the franchise. Um, they tried to bring back the films after Peter Sellers had died. They tried on the Robita as Son of the Pink Panther. It's fucking shocking. But this podcast is about bad remakes, not bad sequels. So that's what we're talking about. This film also marks the absolute nadir of Steve Martin's career progression from brilliant peak years of The Jerk and Roxanne and plunging him into the hellish depths of remakes no one wanted. And... We, we got into this about Steve Martin last night, so, and I think it's a, it's a good point you made, James. We'll, we'll, we'll cover it now. Steve Martin used to be known for brilliant offbeat comedy. His first film, The Jerk, was a huge hit. Stanley Kubrick was so impressed by him and The Jerk that he wanted to do, use Steve Martin in a film, which would, you know, eventually uh, that idea became a more serious film, eyes wide shut, but he was going to do like an offbeat weird comedy version of that story with Steve Martin in the lead role. After that, he did things like Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, All of Me, Roxanne, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. He had a good 80s, and then he he, he kept trying to do different stuff like um, Spanish Prisoner and, and, and more interesting films, but then these crappy remakes and sequels start to creep in, Father of the Bride, Sergeant Bilko, and then in the 2000s, he's just given up the fight to keep making good films. He decides to go with the flow, bank the money, and just make lots of shit remakes, and the worst moment of this is the Pink Panther, 2006. Even though the first one was as bad as it was, they went and made a sequel. So I knew all this before I started watching the film, and I was already in a bad mood about this film, right I was getting ready to hate it you know I was expecting it to be bad, right I prepared myself for that. What I didn't expect was to be cringing so hard that I was curled up in a fetal ball on the floor after half an hour of this film. fucking hell and and there's no you know there's no way you can say to Steve Martin oh he just took the money he doesn't know you know what was going to happen here. he co-wrote the script. Steve Martin was involved in the production of this film and, and you know, the writing, the script and defining what the character is going to be. And it's amazing how little understanding he has apparently of what was going to make this character in this film work. Oh my God. I mean, if you've seen a single pink panther film with, with Pete Sellers, he's really pompous. He's really incompetent. He's got this stupid French accent that has all the other characters like confused because he's mispronouncing the words, which is obviously a stupid joke. Right. And, and yet he succeeds despite his incompetence. It's not hard to understand. And yet Steve Martin does such a fucking terrible job of every aspect of this. He doesn't even do the, the accent properly. He just sounds like someone who can't do French accents. It's the difference between Les Dawson playing the piano badly for comic effect and someone who just can't play the piano. It's fucking awful. They try and do the slapstick and not one person involved in this film seems to know how to do a comic set piece. You know, when you set up, build up. It's just fucking Every done is so badly done every step of the way. I mean, there is a storyline, and the storyline is spelled out for you nice, nice and clearly at the beginning because the film assumes you're a moron, and I suppose you'd have to be a moron to watch this film. And it just it, it spells out, oh, "This is what's going to happen in the film." Oh, thanks for that. That's that's what's happening. Oh, good because I, you know, I didn't, want, I didn't want to have to work anything out for myself. It's pitched at such an Im- immensely stupid level um there's obviously a bit of like inspector cluso character that might have been a bit dodgy to do now because in the originals he had a, a chinese um man or you know a butler and whenever he came home he'd instructed kato to launch a surprise attack on him so whenever cluso comes home Kato's is hiding somewhere and is going to attack him uh, and cluso decides he wants to do this to keep him sharp and 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 kato is so you know determined to do that however however much cluso doesn't want to do it he always does it and that looks really dated now. It was dated then. I mean, they were taking the piss out of it then. I'm not sure you could have done a Chinese man-servant in a modern film of it. What they shouldn't have done was what they did in this film, which is where Steve Martin has a, an assistant detective played by Jean Reno, and Steve Martin Clouseau says, to keep you sharp, I'm going to attack you when you least expect it, and then attacks him right there and then, and Jean Reno punches him in the face, and he goes, good one. And they that's their attempt at the Cato attack, and they do that about five times during the film, and it doesn't get any funnier um oh my god and oh i, I I'm, I'm actually lost for words of how badly they executed it because the, each each scene would come along and i'd be like cringing like sitting there thinking oh fuck i can't believe it i can't believe they're this unfunny i can't believe they're this
1: crap they scaring the hell out of me how crap they are they did make cheaper by the dozen one and cheaper by the dozen two before this film so you shouldn't have been too shocked how fucking crap it was you just yeah, know man. you know when you know a film's going to be shit you see that steve martin who hasn't been funny in about 15 years is making a remake of the pink panther and it's got beyonce in it <sighs> I, just, I, I, I just couldn't be fucked watching it I'm i'm glad i didn't spend actual hard-earned currency that's like that's just under an hour of me working hard to to get that fucking shit inside my eyeballs i'm i'm glad i didn't watch it because it sounds like it's actually caused it's like it sounds like it's aged you it sounds like you're it's it's you know what if you describe some of the things that
0: happen in this film if i just tell you about them right you would be given a mistaken impression that the film is is funnier than it is because there are there are there are stunts or set pieces they do that could have been funny if everyone involved in this film didn't do such a fucking shit job there's a bit where he's trying to get together with the woman and because it's modern and they decide to do some like things with modern trappings, he's about to take a Viagra and he drops his Viagra down the sink and then has to like dismantle the sink to get the Viagra and causes a flood and causes other things to happen. And you'll probably imagine, if you haven't seen this film, you're probably imagining in your mind's eye that someone could do that and be funny. Well, they don't manage it in this film. They whatever, they whatever they decide to do, they do a shit version of it. They do a bit where he's... Um, you know, paranoid that the room's being bugged for no reason they don't even set anything up and so what he does is he goes around cutting wires in the uh in the hotel room because he thinks there might be bugs and the chandelier falls down in, in the lobby as a result now again could have been funny in only fools and four in only fools and horses it was funny fucking shit here they honestly i was absolutely staggered by what a bad job they did this film they attempt to gags to do with the crazies of the time like downloading ringtones and getting a virus, which in scam phone calls that's you know that's dated even now. Um there's a whole bit where he gets an elocution teacher to teach him how to speak an American accent, which I have no idea whether needs him to do that, but it's actual agony to watch. I never I never thought I would actually watch someone who I love as much as Steve Martin and be at physical pain watching him try to be funny. I could not fucking believe it and then they just tack on a typical american comedy third act you know where he's disgraced and goes off with his tail between his legs and learns a lesson and then comes up with one last plan to save the day which is not how Cluseo works at all cluso always succeeds in spite, in spite of his incompetence and it's just fucking hell i mean it's just amazing steve martin doesn't just desecrate the legacy of peter sellers in this film he desecrates his own legacy as well and i honestly i I wonder if I could sit and watch an old, good Steve Martin film now and not be gritting my teeth at the shitness of these films he's been doing for the past 25 years. I'm just just blown away by how shit this film was. I'd like to remind you that they made a second one. I know. Make a second one. <laughs> oh. It's just no one comes out of this in any credit. Kevin Kline, who's a good actor, he does not even begin to compare to Herbert Lom as Dreyfus, who he's replacing in this film. None of it works. None of it works on any level.
1: Well, I I suppose to finish this off, I made the comparison between Steve Martin and Adam Sandler, which is very controversial because Adam Sandler's made some films that I found hilarious. Wedding Singer is one of my favorite comedy films. Mm-hmm. I liked uh, Big Daddy. I liked The Walker Boy. He's very good in Punch Drunk Love. He's good in Uncut Gems. And we know that Adam Sandler has that ability to make him laugh, even in some of his films that aren't funny. Like Billy Madison on the whole isn't funny, but there's moments where Adam Sandler's comedic genius. You're like, yeah, yeah he's got that comedy there, like the bit in Billy Madison with the kid's stuttering and Adam Sandler goes, today, Junior. Yes, yeah. Like that kind of stuff made me laugh at the time. It's probably a bit dated now, but it's, it kind of made, it showed me that Adam Sandler, even though Billy Madison's a god awful film, Adam Sandler has that ability. And then he wasted his time making things like um, Click and Grown Ups 1, Grown Ups 2, Pixels. And, you know,
0: little it's Nicky it's I a find very funny. similar thing because whenever you're watching him in a film that's so relentlessly deliberate, almost deliberately shit, there's some something in the back of your mind always going, "I know you're better than this. I've seen you be better than this. How the fuck are you doing this? Yes. Absolute irredeemable pile of shit."
1: Steve Martin's made some hilarious films. You know, *Planes, Trains, and Automobiles* is a legendary film. Um, mm. And it's it's just frustrating to see him make a film as bad as Pink Panther, even though I've not seen it Pink Panther. Pink Panther, sorry. It's it's frustrating. And it's the same the same kind of sentiment I have towards Adam Sandler. Like, what the fuck Because like, the problem is, is that between I said this to you last night, between Punch Drunk Love and Uncut Gems, there's a 17 year gap where he made some god awful films. And you're thinking, well, if your ability was always there that you can get, you know, a film like Uncut Gems, which was, you know, widely praised and it, it kinda of took everyone aback because it was a film that Adam Sandler had made that wasn't shit. It's the same with Steve Martin. I mean, Steve Martin kind of had his like kind of had his peak and it's just kind of, it's kind of wind down. He's just getting his final paychecks with films like Pink Panther. It's probably why they made a second one. Um, kind of similar things I have towards, um, Colin Farrell. Colin Farrell is one of my favorite actors and he's made brilliant films. Like Inberush is probably my, probably my favorite funny film, I suppose. I suppose it's very dark humor, but it's one of my favorite films. But he also made that god awful. What was it, Alexander film? Yeah, like, I mean, it,
0: you wonder with with um, Colin Farrell whether he's he's kind of like if if you were going to compare him to an actor from a different era, it would be Burt Reynolds, incredibly talented actor. He's got everything going for him, and when everything hits, you just can't imagine a a, a a better actor doing what he does. And yet, he just has this really poor judgment with the films that he does. Um, with 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 Steve Martin and Adam Sandler, there seems to be this kind of. Almost, surely they know how shit this is. Surely they can see
1: how shit this is. Fucking hell, man. It's strange that it just seems quite lazy. It seems like I'm not saying Adam Sandler and Steve Martin are the same because I know a lot of people will probably disagree with me and probably say that Steve Martin's a comedy legend, Adam Sandler's an absolute charlatan. But there's a similar kind of not career path. I, I, th- I of- think the
0: comparison stands up myself because, as you say, the 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 sheer brilliance of some of his films, and
1: then the sheer. You know gap between that and what he does most of the time, you know? Yeah, it's, they, they should just know better. And surely, you know, the, Steve Martin's looking at that and making cheaper by the dozen, too. And he's just trying to cash in a paycheck, which is a bit of a shame. But there's better ways to cash in your paycheck, like do, Keanu Reeves did John Wick and uh, Liam Neeson did the Taken series. Now, the, the first one was good, but the next two were shit. But you know, there's if you're going to cash in a paycheck, at least put some effort into it. It just seems quite lazy from him, which is a shame because he's, you know, he's, he's 76 this year, uh, Steve Martin. So he's, uh, no, I mean, I mean, I, I don't think. I think it's very unlikely that we're going
0: to get a sudden career shift from Steve Martin, where we can say, "Oh, we had that bad period, and then he got good again." I think those good days are behind him, and if he does appear in something else, it's going to be another fucking piece of shit like yeah, this.
1: That's why. That's what I'm trying to go for. He's, you know, he's 76 this year, and now he's. We we don't remember him. We, we remember his stuff back in the 70s and 80s, but now more recently he's not done anything good for a while, which is, which is a shame because he, uh, he, he's not one of my favourite comedic actors, but I can tell he's one of yours. So I imagine it's more frustrating for you to see him making as many shit films as he has.
0: I mean, if you see something he did like All of Me, he's working with Lily Tomlin and the idea behind the film, is a very silly one. He's um, some strange event, like a version of Freaky Friday means that a dead woman's spirit is is accidentally sent into his body and you've got a whole film of Steve Martin and Lily Tomlin fighting over control of the body. So Steve Martin's playing his the character he's playing, and then he's playing Lily Tomlin's characteristics, having an argument with him, essentially himself, as he walks down the street. And you just think, I'm falling apart, how funny this is. And you just think, it is you know, not that long you're going to see him do films that make you literally curl up in a ball, because you just cannot stand to watch another minute of it. Just, it's, oh, fucking, what happened to him, man? Shame, man. We're going to take an intermission now. Sorry for interrupting the flow. The second reel of the podcast is available to download as we speak, and we hope you will rejoin us soon for the exciting conclusion of this month's episode.
1: When you do, we'll be taking on the big conversation. This month, we're looking at the modern phenomenon of toxic fandom and its impact on filmmakers. That's all for
0: the first reel of this month's episode of the Double Reel Film Podcast. The episode was recorded and edited with the help of Anchor FM, Audacity, and Zencaster. Anything that sounded good was down to them, and anything that sounded crap was down to us.
1: The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. We'll give you a full set of credits at the end of Reel 2 of the episode, including info on the films and topics we discussed. Look forward to joining
0: you for another helping of nerdy chat in just a minute. See you on the other side.
1: Feel better now.
0: I feel a little better, yeah.